For today, we're going to continue with our series. We've been going through the book of Philippians. So we're on the final chapter. Today, we're going to look at chapter four of the book of Philippians. And we're going to look at just the first four verses. Okay, so Philippians chapter four, verse one. Uh, Paul is summing up. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So he starts off with this chapter four, and then he talks about, therefore, because of all the things I've talked about in chapter one and chapter two, chapter three, I want you to stand firm. And it's interesting how he talks about, as we've been mentioning, joy in over and over and over again. So again, he talks about it in verse 1, and we're going to talk about it again in verse 4 in a little more detail. But he talks about uh, them being their joy and crown. And it reminds me of an acronym that I heard about joy. So J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. Okay, so not only is it a priority, so Jesus first, then others, then yourself, but I also think it's actually the source of where we get our joy should be in that order. So we get our joy first from the Lord. Then we get our joy from what's happening in other people's lives. Then we get our joy from what's happening in our own life. Right? So I think if you look at that acronym JOY, it gives you a good reminder of not just the priority, because, you know, we've heard that before. You need to make God the priority and then other people, the first and greatest second command. But it's also the source of where we get our joy and the order which we get it. If we follow that order, I think we can experience what the rest of this passage is going to talk about. So let's take a look at that. Uh, well, first, before we get to, to verse 4 and talk more about joy, in verses 2 and 3, he pleads with them. He's pleading with the Philippian church in, in behalf of Eudicea and with uh, Syntech. He said, I plead with you, I plead with these two women to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companions, talking about the church, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. So he talks about these two ladies and he's asking that the church would come alongside them and help them so they could be unified together, so they could be of one mind together. So obviously there's some kind of conflict and some kind of division between these two ladies. And Paul is saying he was asking the church to kind of stand in the gap for them, to help them, to bring them together. So there's a couple of things I want to point out here. One is how much the Bible and how much Jesus emphasizes unity, right? Unity within the body. Right? And I always look back at John 17 when I think about this. If you think about John 17, John 17 is actually one of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he's going to go to the cross and die. So if you think about it, this is his last chance. And if you think about your last chance of what you're going to say to someone before you know you're going to die, it's going to be real significant. Right? So he prays for them. Right? He prays that, um, you know, that God would be with them and that they would be what? that they would be one, just like he is one with the Father. And then he says that if they are one, then the world will know about God, right? And it's very interesting to me. Like of all the things that Jesus could have mentioned about the things that the world would recognize and really be a demonstration of who God is, he doesn't say preaching. He doesn't say your love. He doesn't say all these other things that we would think of. He says, if they are one, like we are one, then the world will know you. 
That's how much he's talking about in terms of unity and the power of us being one together. Being one together as a church, as a family. Being one together with the capital C church, the church around the world, that we're one together. That we lose that, especially, like I've been saying about being in the West, we're very individualistic. We just think about ourselves in our own little world. We don't think about our connection with other people. And because we don't think about our connection with other people, things don't make sense in our lives because that's not how God works. God doesn't only do things in your life for yourself. It's interesting the Lord was starting to speak to me about this, about the things that are happening in my life are not about me, are not all about me. At least that's the way that I was kind of taking it, right? And I started noticing, and he started pointing out, there's things that happen in your life that are not for you. They're for somebody else. And if we don't understand this, then we're not going to understand the things that are happening to us. We're not going to understand the things that the Lord is taking us through. We're not going to understand the things that he's speaking to us about. If we're only thinking that the things happening to us are about us, we're going to miss it. We're not going to understand what God is doing. Because God doesn't see us as individuals. He sees us connected to the whole body. He talks about us being one family and one body together that are connected together, that are unified together. So if we have conflict with each other, if we have disagreements that are separating each other, we need to address it. It's serious. You know, the Bible talks about saying, like, talking about the communion table. It says, if you know that someone has something together with you, I don't even want you to take communion. Put the communion down and go make it right. And it says, not... Just because if you hurt someone, even if someone has something against you, you are the one to go make it right. Whether you hurt that person or that person hurt you, you're the one that's supposed to go and to reach out. And the Bible says, as much as it depends on you to bring peace. As much as you can't control the other person. You can't control what they say. You can't control how they're going to react. You can't control if they're going to receive an apology or not. You can't control other people. You can only control yourself and your own actions. So for us, we need to look at what Paul is saying here and to see the importance of it. Like, we're one together. We're connected and we need to be unified together. The second thing I wanted to point out in these two, two verses is something that could kind of easily be kind of missed as you read through it. It's that these two are women. When he talks about these two women, he says, these two women are my co-laborers along with Clement and other people that are ministering together with Paul in sharing the gospel. He's saying, these two women are my co-laborers. And that's easy to miss, right? And when we read the Bible, and I think about this kind of, you know, frequently when I think about, when we talk about men and women in the Bible, how hard it is for women when they read the Bible, because it talks about men all the time. Right? It's about men, and all the pronouns are he, and all the things are centered around. And really, it's reflective of the society they live in. They live in a patriarchal society, right, where it's centered around that. That's the culture that they live in, and that's the environment that the writers are living in. And so it's understandable why it's written this way. But it's easy to overlook the significance of women in the church and the significance of women in the body. Right? And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, hopefully maybe we can do that again in the future, but the women have a significant place in the body of Christ. We see it here. Paul calls them his co-laborers. 
You think about Paul and how significant what he was in his church, how significant it was in the ministry and the spread of the gospel, and the significance and the start of Christianity and what we know it today. He says, these women are my co-laborers. Not below me, not under me, but my co-laborers together with me. He's considering them partners together. This is how much he sees them and elevates them. So when we look at this, we need to pay attention to when we see things like this. And we see this not just with Paul, we see it with Jesus. Jesus talks about that as well. And again, we'll probably talk about that more in the future. But I wanted to at least mention it because we see it here in the first uh, couple verses here in verse 2 and 3 of Philippians. Okay, now let's get to verse 4. Okay, so verse 4 is where we want to spend the rest of our time. Okay, verse 4, Paul says this command, okay, it's written in the imperative, which is a command. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Okay, so I've mentioned this before. You need to pay attention to whenever the Bible repeats something. Because whenever they repeat something, it's not just repeating for repeating's sake, right? It's adding an additional emphasis. Okay, and the analogy I always like to use is like the Richter scale for like earthquakes. Like, so when you look at a 3.0 versus a 1.0, it's not just one more. It's like multiple, multiple times more when you keep adding on top. That's what we see when we look at when the Bible repeats something again and again. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he's not just trying to repeat himself. He's adding some kind of emphasis. So when Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. Rejoice. He's not just trying to repeat himself to make himself heard again. He's emphasizing that how much of importance this really is and how much we tend to forget. He's saying you need to rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice in the Lord. Now, I mention that because whenever I read passages like this, and you might be the same way, I read it and I think, okay, that's good, but I, almost, I, don't, I don't consciously think this, but in a way I'm thinking, but this is kind of like optional. You know, like you go, to, you go to your fast food and they said, oh, do you want fries with that? Right? It's kind of like an option, right? It's just optional. You go to your meal and you finish your, your dinner and then you're like, oh, would you want to have dessert? It's like a little add-on, right? This is not essential. This is not an essential part of the Christian life, right? It's optional. Like it's good to have right? Fries are good to have. Dessert is really great to have. I like to have that. It's a great option to have, but it's just optional. It's not the main meal. It's not the foundation of my belief. Other things are the foundation, right? It's my faith. It's my trust. It's my belief in who Jesus is and about the gospel, and that's all true. Those are all foundational things, but when we read a passage like this, I don't think we take it very seriously versus other commands in the Bible, you know, do not have an idol, do not get drunk, do not do this, or, do, or love your neighbors. Those are the ones, you better take it seriously. Go and share the gospel and make disciples of all nations. Oh, I better take that one seriously. That one seems very important to me. This one? Uh, not so much. We don't take this seriously enough. When Paul says we are to rejoice always, and he'll say it again to rejoice, we need to take this more seriously. Let's look at another passage in, in 1 Thessalonians 5. This kind of really emphasizes, when I look at this passage, it really elevates what Paul is saying in Philippians 4.4. 4. 
verse 16 in, Philipp- in 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Rejoice always, again, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do you know the Bible doesn't say God's will very often? Those words, God's will, is not written in the Bible very often. There's actually very few times that you'll see the Bible say, this is God's will, that plainly, right? This is one of them. This is one of them where it says, this is God's will. Okay, as Christians, that's something that we are conscious about. That's something that we should be thinking about, like, what is God's will for us? Okay, he makes it very plain. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will. Very plain. It's not a mystery, right? We think that God's will is kind of mysterious and elusive. Okay, and what we really mean by that is, what is God's specific will for me? Right? When we say God's will is mysterious, I think what we're really saying is, what is God's individual will for me, specific will for me? Like, who am I going to marry? Or what job am I going to have? Or where should I live? Like when we ask those specific questions, I think that's what's in our mind when we think like God's will is kind of elusive, right? But when we think about God's will in general for all of us, for all believers, it's very clear. This is one of the passages that make it very clear what his will for us. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will for you. This is our job description, right? If you go to your job, you have like a job description of what you're supposed to do in your job. This is our job description. He says, this is my will for you. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Now, when we look at this, it really emphasizes or really elevates what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4.4 when he says, you need to rejoice in the Lord always. Because this is God's will for you, right? And like I said, when we think about when we often when we think about God's will, we think about our specific situation in our life. You know, we're going through a, a difficult time. We're going through a transition. We're going through a fork in the road, and saying like, "What is God's will for me?" And then we're praying and asking, right? And sometimes that asking is hard. We feel frustrated. We don't feel like we're hearing anything from God. We don't feel like we're getting any direction. You know, it'd be easier if we could just like flip a coin and just say, okay, if it heads, I'm going to choose this job. If it's tails, I'm going to go choose this other area, right? Sometimes it feels like it'd be easier than that. But as Christians, we like try to seek God's will. Like, what is your will for me in this area? What do you want from me? And that's a good thing. I'm not saying that that's wrong, that we shouldn't be doing that. But what I want to share with you is this. A lot of times when God's specific will is unclear, what should we do? Should we continue to be frustrated and ask? Or should we focus on his part of his will that is clear to us? And I think that this is the part that we want to focus in on today. This is clear. You don't have to ask. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to wonder, is this God's will for me? Does he want this for me in my life? No. It's very clear. 100%. Yes. Rejoice always. Yes. That's his will for you. That's his desire. That's his heart for you. That's his uh, purpose for you and why he puts you in Christ to rejoice always. And I think that if we spend more time focusing in on the things that are clear, the things that aren't clear will become clear. 
Does that make sense? Like we're constantly seeking the things that are not known yet, the things that aren't revealed yet, and we keep making that our primary focus when I think that that's, that's backwards. We should make our primary focus the things that are clear, the things that God is saying to us and is speaking to us, like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. That's clear. So if we're looking and asking God for direction in these different areas and we're not finding it, guess what? Don't worry about that. Go to what is clear. Focus your attention on that. Make this your primary focus where you're pouring all your energy. And let me, let me tell you, when I've done this, the other, things are, the other things become more clear. God starts speaking. And a lot of times we can't hear from God because we're not doing this. We're not in a place where we can hear from him. We're not in a place because we're so anxious or we're so worried or we're trying to control too much in our own life. We can't even hear from God. So what puts us in a position where we can hear his specific will for us is if we're rejoicing always, if we're constantly talking to him and communicating, not because we're asking him for something, because we want to be connected with him, that we want to be intimate with him, that we want to communicate with him, that we're giving thanks in all circumstances, that we're grateful, we have a grateful attitude. Can I tell you, if you do those three things, God will speak to you more clearly. It's not because God doesn't want to speak to you. God does want to speak to you. The problem is here on our side. It's not from his side. The problem is we can't hear because our heart condition is not in the right place to be able to understand, to hear, to be able to receive what he's saying. When Paul says we need to rejoice in the Lord always, this is a good command. This is one job that I would like, right? If you think about this job description, this is... A good one, right? To rejoice. That is our job, to rejoice. And when we look at that, we feel like this shouldn't be a burden to us. But I think what gets hard for us is when we look at the word always. Okay, so look at Philippians 4, 4. It says rejoice in the Lord always. And I think we get kind of tripped up in that, right? We said, okay, rejoice in the Lord, yeah, but always? Like at all times? And that's really what that verse means, at all times. Rejoice in the Lord at all times. How is that even possible, right? And if we think that's not possible, then it's hard for us to really engage it and to say, like, I'm going to try to do that. I'm going to try to rejoice at all times. You feel like you're going into something that's already going to fail. Like, you can't do that. Okay, so what I want to really address and what's helpful for me is looking at another verse that's kind of related to this that I think is kind of the key to help us in Philippians 4.4. And it's one we've looked at in the past, and it's one we've probably seen many times in our life. Romans 8.28 it says, As we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Okay, so if you remember when I talked about this verse before, this verse is talking about when, when Paul says, in all things God works for the good, he's talking about negative things, Right? Negative things in your life, God is actually used for your good. Because if it's already good, then God doesn't need to make it good, right? Does that make, does that make sense? This verse is talking about negative things. If it's already positive, he doesn't need to make it good. It's already good. He's talking about negative things in your life. That those negative, all the negative things in your life, it's going to work for your good, right? That's what Romans 8.28 says. So if we believe Romans 8.28, then that, what does that mean to me? That means... Everything is either good or in the process of becoming good. 
Okay, if Romans 8.28 is true, that everything is either good or in the process of becoming good. And so if it's not good, then you know it's not over. If it's not good, if all things work together with good, all the negative things work together for our good, uh, then we know if it's not good, he's not finished yet. It's not done yet. If we understand Romans 28, Romans 8.28, we can do Philippians 4.4. 4. Because this says, I can rejoice when things are good, or I can rejoice when things are bad. If I really believe in Romans 8.28, that's the key to me to be able to experience Philippians 4.4, to rejoice always. When we understand this, this can change us. And there's two parts to Romans 8.28. So the things that are already good, like I said, that's not what Paul's talking about here. Those things don't need to become good. They're already good. But I think the problem for us is even the good things we don't rejoice in. Even the good things that are happening in our life, they just pass us by. We don't even give it a lot of thought. We don't really dwell on it. We don't praise God for it. We don't give thanks for those things. They just kind of happen and you recognize it sometimes. Sometimes you don't even recognize it. Even the good things we're not rejoicing in. But those are the easy ones. That's the low fruit. Start with that first. There's good things all the time in your life. No matter how difficult your life is right now, no matter how much struggling you're going through, there are good things in your life. Are you living and breathing? That's good. Do you know Jesus? That's good. No matter how difficult your life is, you will always have things that are good. Are you rejoicing in those things? There's two parts. There are things that are good, things that are not good. The things that are good, we need to rejoice in those things more often. We just let it go. God gives us so many blessings. He shows his uh, hand in our life so often on a daily, moment-by-moment basis. We're not seeing it, we're not receiving it, and we're not rejoicing in it. We need to reverse that. We need to take this seriously, that this is one of our main jobs. This is the one, one of the things that's clear for us as Christians. Our job is to rejoice. That's a good thing. That's a good job. To have joy, that's your job. Have joy, right? That's a good thing. It's not a heavy weight. It's not something difficult to have joy. That's why Jesus says you need to be like little children. They have no problem being joyful all the time, right? We have to tell them to be quiet and stop being joyful, right? But I think we need to learn from that, to be joyful. We need to have joy in the good things. And then in order to do this Philippians 4.4, we need to have joy in the difficult times too. We need to have joy and believe in Romans 8.28. That even in this, I'm having greater intimacy with God. Even in this, he's showing himself to me more clearly. Even in this, he's drawing me close. Even in this, he's increasing my dependence on him. So I can be more dependent on God and less dependent on myself. And that is a good thing. We need to rejoice at all times, whether we think things are good or whether we think things are bad. But if we can do that, we can experience one of the primary things that God has for us in our life, one of the things he makes crystal clear for us, his will for us and his desire for our life. Rejoice. Stop being so serious all the time. I know I do that. I'm just, just thinking so serious all the time, being more responsible all the time. Right? And I'm not, 
I'm not proponing being irresponsible, but I'm saying be joyful in your responsibility. Be joyful in the things you're doing. Be joyful at all times, regardless of what's going on, regardless of what you're doing, regardless of what you're experiencing. Be joyful, okay? And joyful is not something manufactured as we talked about before. It's joy in the Lord. It's genuine internal joy and peace that can't be shaken. That's the kind of joy that the Lord wants for us and wants us to experience. Let's pray. So, Father, we pray that you would come and give us your joy. Paul says it's the joy of the Lord that we need to rejoice in. It's your joy. It's not our joy. It doesn't come from us. It comes from you. So I pray right now, even as we're seated, help us to receive your joy. The joy that comes from knowing you. The joy that comes from knowing you're here and present with us. That you have all things under your control. You have all things under your rule and reign. There's nothing outside of you that we can rejoice and we can be peaceful. And we can have the things that you desire for us and clear for us in our life. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.